Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Uh, I am doing well. Today on the show, we have Emily Bingham. She is the author of My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song. If you don't know who Emily Bingham is, uh, she is famous because her family owned the the courier journal for a really long time but she is a great historian in her own right she's written several books including this one which is reckoning with my old kentucky home uh we're called my old kentucky podcast uh and you know when we started this five years ago we were like oh it's the state song and we've learned a lot since then and a lot of it came from this book so it is it was really good to talk to her it was definitely a very interesting conversation very interesting book i would really recommend reading it i would really recommend listening to the interview um yeah what what did you think I thought the interview was great. It's definitely a little bit different than what we usually do, but I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed the book as well. She's the first guest to ever send us a copy of a book, so really appreciated that. But yeah, I really enjoyed talking to Dr. Bingham. Yeah, she's great. Glad we got to talk to her. Um, Hopefully everybody listens to that interview. But the primary election is less than a week away, and early voting starts tomorrow. So we definitely want to do a primary preview. So Jasmine's going to start the show by doing legislative race previews, all of the interesting primaries, both uh, in Louisville and outside of Louisville for state legislature and the state house in the state senate i have a long list of other races that are not state legislative um which mean stuff that's bigger like congress or mayor and then also other small stuff like metro council lfucg council and then also some judge executive races a lot of stuff to talk about um louisville's budget was released the draft budget mayor fisher's final draft budget so we wanted to talk a little bit about that and we have some quick hits so that's a lot to get to so let's go ahead and get into it jasmine tell us what we need to know about these legislative races all right so at some point or another we've probably talked about most of these but This will give people a good place to come just to hear all about them right before the primary. So the first one, the first few we're going to talk about are all Democratic primaries in Louisville. So the first one is District 43. Um, That district includes West Louisville, Shelby Park, and then um, parts of town along the river. Like it goes all the way to like Zorn Avenue. And in that district, incumbent Pamela Stevenson faces Robert Lavertis Bell, who is a Democratic Socialist of America candidate. Um, Both of them were on our podcast, so if you're in that district, you can go back and listen to those interviews. Lavertis Bell was initially running for Reginald Meeks' open seat um, against Katora Heron. While he was seeking the nomination in the special election, Katora Heron got the nomination and got the seat, and he was going to run for it. Um, But then... Uh, redistricting happen- happened, and he's now in District 43 and decided to stay in the race. Um, I would say the West End TIF has kind of been a primary issue in the race, and that is something that I know um, both Pamela, Ste- Pamela Stevenson has defended it um, to her constituents, and, and Robert Lavertis Bell has definitely questioned it. So that's District 43. I think this is a, a pretty tough primary for Representative Stevenson. What do you think, Robert? Totally agree. I think, you know, Robert Lavertis Bell has been out there working really hard. Um, he has been canvassing. He's tons of volunteers. He's, you know, got yard signs, got big signs. Uh, he's definitely not just like uh, cursory or, or um, you know, small 
uh, challenge. It's a pretty significant challenge. Mm-hmm. And, and I totally agree that the Weston Tiff is is the major big issue, specific issue facing this race. But I also think that this is a big race just for like broad just like th- ideology. Yes, yeah. I yes. think that to me, to me, that's even bigger than the TIF. It's like what kind of representation does this district want? Does it want? traditional democratic representation um you know uh somebody like pamela stevenson or you know like reginald meeks before her and um you know like gerald neal or something somebody like that somebody who's been like the type of people who've kind of been serving this office for a long time even charles booker i would put him in that in that vein or do they want to go in a different direction do they want to do they want somebody who's you know uh, an avowed socialist who is willing to take on leftist causes uh up front and and personal um so to me that's the big big question in this campaign um and, and i do think uh there's gonna it's gonna be close i i it's gonna be a really interesting race to watch i'm gonna watch it very closely maybe it won't be close you never can tell i hate predicting things uh, maybe it'll blow up be a blowout in one direction or the other but it feels close to me right now yeah it, it's always hard to tell in in races like this you know you see both parties working really hard and you're like man he's working super hard but she's got a lot of support too and but yeah, who knows what will happen. Um, the next one is District 30. That is right in the middle of Louisville. So it's a central Louisville district. Um, Tom Birch, who has been in the legislature for over 40 years, um, is running again. And he faces Daniel Grossberg and Neil Turpin. Grossberg is a realtor, a Jefferson County commissioner, and he's president of the Metro Democratic Club. He's raised over $120,000 in the race, but it is largely self-funded. And then Neil Turpin is a city planner and a political science professor at UofL, and he has a PhD in urban and public affairs. And then Tom Birch, of course, is the incumbent. He's 90 years old, um, and he was absent for quite a bit of the 22 legislative session, um, but he still managed to see most major endorsements like um, CFAIR, which is Fairness, Better Schools Kentucky, which is um, the political arm of JCTA, the Greater Louisville Central Labor Council. Daniel Grossberg has also received some labor endorsements, and he's also received the endorsement of Metro Council President David James. And so, you know, I think... Tom Birch just has a lot of goodwill with a lot of these labor unions and fairness because of all the work he's done over the years. Uh, but he's definitely getting older. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 90s very old uh no matter what how you slice it um this is another one you know tom birch has a name that people have been voting for in that area for a very 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 long time but daniel grossberg is making his i think second run at this seat um he's been working really hard he's been knocking a lot of doors he's been uh you know working the you know the 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 big names across the city trying to get endorsements and he's won a few he's won a couple of big big feathers in his cap that you mentioned neil turpin is keeping his head down you know i'm, I'm not sure a lot of people outside of the district really know what kind of campaign he's running but he's knocking a lot of doors too he's out there working every day um you know i, I i've had conversations with with both daniel and neil in this race um and i know that they're they're all <laughs> working really hard uh and, and apparently tom mm-hmm. birch is also feeling a lot better and i saw that he was out um working too so so yeah this He's been out at some events and things like that too. Yeah, so that this is going to be this is going to be a really interesting race, um, and, and it will be it'll be interesting to see see what happens here. I could see it going any number of ways. Mm-hmm. The next one is District Thirty One, which is in East Louisville. It includes like parts of J Town and 
uh, Douglas Hills. This is a district without an incumbent. So Derek Penwell and Sue Foster are both running for the seat. Derek Penwell is a minister and he's endorsed by fairness. Um, and then Sue Foster has the endorsement of better schools, Kentucky and several labor unions. She's been heavily involved in the labor movement. Both of them were on this show as well. So you can go back to and listen to those interviews. Derek Penwell had already filed in another district, I think in district 36 prior to redistricting and had raised money in that campaign. He filed pretty early. And so he does have a significant fundraising lead over Sue Foster, but she definitely has um, a lot of support from labor. This race in the next one you're going to talk about, I have no clue what's going to happen, but I will say <laughs> of all four of the candidates that are running in these, th this race in the next one you're going to talk about, I do like all four of them. Um, yeah. And I really don't think it can go wrong, uh, even though, you know, it's going to be disappointing for, for the, the people who, who don't win in the end. Yeah, I think, Robert, we have no idea what's going to happen in any of these four Louisville races is is what we're getting. I don't at. have any clue. I, I'm done in the prediction game. <laughs> I, you know, I'm going to although, you know, I, I'm going to do it when it comes to November and I'm going to be way wrong again. So it's that's how it goes. <laughs> All right. So the last Louisville one that I was going to talk about is District 34, which is um, parts of like St. Matthews and Crescent Hill. And that's also a new district. And um, both candidates were on our podcast pretty recently. So you can go back and listen to Sarah Stalker and Jonathan Lowe. Sarah Stalker is the director for the Center of Nonprofit Excellence. And, and she's more of a political newcomer, I would say. Jonathan Lowe, you know, he hasn't held office, but he works in policy for JCPS. He's also worked for the Legislative Research Commission previously. Um, he's been on several boards in Louisville and pretty involved in democratic politics in Louisville. Um, Jonathan Lowe has received a lot of the major endorsements, including Fairness, Better Schools Kentucky, and several of the labor unions. Um, my parents live in this district, so I am over there quite a bit, and I see lots of both yard signs. I know my parents have gotten a Jonathan Lowe mailer. Um, I've seen Sarah Stalker at a lot of parades that I've participated in. I think they're both working really hard, too. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, did you talk to your parents about who they're going to vote for? I did talk to them. Don't tell us. It's a secret. I'm not going I'm not going to tell. Yeah, I didn't tell who my parents are in the the previous one, and I'm not going to tell you who they're going to vote for either. So. <laughs> All right. So, that kind of wraps up the Louisville Democratic primaries. There were a couple other GOP primaries I was going to mention. So, one is District 55. Tony Wheatley is challenging incumbent Kim King. Um, Wheatley was one of the people who signed the petition to impeach the governor. And then he was also responsible for organizing a rally outside the governor's mansion um, where someone was hung Bashir in effigy. So I don't know this, this race kind of from the outside, I don't live in this district or, or near it, but it does seem kind of heated. I, I saw that there was recently um, like a debate or a, a town hall, a forum of some sort that they participated in. Um, but this is one of a few races that we're going to talk about where there's like a Liberty candidate that maybe like got some steam during the COVID restriction time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And not necessarily just about COVID stuff for a lot of these folks, but COVID certainly was 
what catapulted them a lot of these yes. candidates into the the main the, right. uh, the mainstream i guess is where we are yeah. and yeah yeah this is a big theme of like republican incumbent who you know we think is pretty bad but is pretty <laughs> right. pretty like normal type bad getting a challenge from somebody who's way way off the mm-hmm. reservation in my opinion so uh that's district 55 yeah so district 18 has kind of a similar race in that district um samara hebron in litchfield also faces a liberty candidate jacob clark and in that district a group called commonwealth conservatives has been mailing anti hebron ads um and so I don't think anyone is really sure like where this group aligns because it's been interesting. They have been mailing out attack ads against um, Samara Heverin and also Savannah Maddox, who are both Republicans, but pretty different ideologically. So they're against them, but then they've also been sending out supportive ads supporting Kim King. So I'm not really sure where this group stands, but that's what's going on in district 18 very strange district 12 um that district includes several counties crittenden union webster mclean county um that's one district where two gop incumbents will face each other so lynn beckler and jim gooch um i guess were victims of redistricting and are running against one another they've they've both been in the legislature for quite some time um, I think Jim Gooch has been there a little bit longer, but they've both been there at least 10 years. I don't really have a handle on what's going to happen there. Do you, Robert? Um, y- you know, I, I don't know. I, Jim Gooch, I, I associate more with like Owensboro, but I guess that makes a lot more sense. He's from like the coal mining part of uh, Western Kentucky. Um, he was a Democrat for a very, very long time. He was one of the only uh, Democrats who switched parties after Matt Bevin was elected uh, in order to kind of help them try to get the majority. And um, yeah, he back when he was a Democrat, he's been there much longer than 10 years. Uh, whenever I was in college, I remember Jim Gooch being like this anti-climate change, anti-Obama Democrat from Kentucky. And he was like always in the news like, this guy is a Democrat. Well, now he's a Republican, just like all the other people who thought that way. Um, and, you know, I don't know what the politics are like inside of the caucus, but I don't know. If I were to guess, I would think that like maybe he never got along with them because he has mm-hmm. has this history as being a Democrat in the in the distant past. But but I don't know. Um, I don't know why they decided to pit these two against each other. Maybe they just flipped a coin and decided that this was the district that lost out. This one and and one in Eastern Kentucky. Yeah, uh, Jim Gooch has definitely been there longer. He's been there since '95. Um, but Lynn Beckler's been there for ten years now, and I think he is is probably you know they both vote with the republicans um i would say most of the time but lynn beckler may be more conservative than jim gooch yeah jim gooch does like he votes pretty i mean he's he's almost like one of those eastern kentucky republicans that votes like Mm -hmm. on uh, you know social service bills um in a less you know right-wing way yeah that could be Mm -hmm. could be a part of it yeah um and then i'm not going to name all of them but just wanted to note that five different northern kentucky republicans face primary challengers and so um up in northern kentucky i think there's a lot of um more conservative like liberty trumpy candidates um challenging republican incumbents up there in the state senate there aren't a ton of races to talk about there are 
several Republican primaries, but I, w- I just wanted to note two of them. So one of them is in District 26, um, which is in here in Louisville. So there is a Republican primary to run against Karen Berg, who um, for won a special election to flip a seat in Louisville. Um, James Peden, who is currently a Metro Councilman, is running... For the Republican side um, against Everett Corley and Mark Downer. James Peden has raised a little over $80,000 and Mark Downer has over $50,000. So those two have raised quite a bit of money. I didn't see any money raised for Everett Corley. Um, so it looks like it, at least a competitive between two of those challengers in he, District 26. Yeah, Everett Corley is a white supremacist who's run for mm-hmm. lots of different states. Yeah. Uh, he ran against Charles Booker, I think, when he first won his race in 2018 or whatever. I guess that Yeah, was he's one. been around a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but he doesn't really raise that much money. He's just always on the ballot. And it's always just like really scary. Uh, you know, you have to list um, you have to list like an email whenever you file to run for office. And um, we talked to, to Bruce Maples last week and he was like telling us what this guy's email was. And it was like racist. It was like a racist email so um that's who that guy is um i think james peden is probably the person who has the highest name recognition mm-hmm. i'm not out there so i don't know what mark downer's done to kind of increase his name recognition but but this seat has gotten a lot more democratic in redistricting they kind of ma- yeah. it's still a, you know in a bad democratic year which 2022 very well could be um it, it could certainly still be won by republicans but this was made a lot safer for democrats and i think karen berg is in a much better shape than she was um than she thought she was going to be <laughs> in uh when this year started so so we'll see what happens there for sure yeah i agree um and then the other one we we've mentioned this one quite a bit on the show in the last couple months but in district 22 donald douglas who just finished his first term in the legislature faces a liberty candidate andrew cooper writer who's known for owning a coffee shop that defied COVID restrictions. And Cooper Ryder had originally filed to run in Alice Forgy Kerr's seat, um, but then uh, because of redistricting, he's now running for Senate against Donald Douglas. And both candidates have over $100,000 in this race. Yeah, it's absolutely wild. Um, You know, the Senate did a lot this session to make Donald Douglas like one of their MVPs. He sponsored a lot of legislation that got passed. He was the person who delivered a lot of the bills that got overridden by the state Senate to this, the um, the secretary of state. Um, He, he was the main sponsor of the bill that ended the state of emergency. I mean, they, the, the Senate took really good care of him, him to make him like <laughs> yeah. somebody who was like front and center. Um, and, and so they care a lot about him and I think they really want him to win. And Andrew Cooper writer, uh, is, not i don't think in the good graces of like rpk (laughs) but he certainly is a republican he's one of those liberty republicans and i I mean it's just like a lot of these state house races that you mentioned with this just like far right person running against somebody who's like we don't think votes very good but seems a little bit more normal yeah i saw a mailer the other day that it was a you know an attack ad against donald douglas and it had a picture of him like with his arm around Andy Bashir. And then it turned out that picture was photoshopped and it was actually from a picture 
of Donald Douglas with Andy Barr. Yeah. So very different Andys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was the worst Photoshop job I've ever seen. There's <laughs> no way. Great. There's no way that Andy Bashir has hands that big. Like the perspective of his head versus the hands like was just ridiculous looking. It made him look like, a, I don't know, something ridiculous. But, you know, cheap mail, I guess. You just get it out there. Um, all right, Jasmine. Yeah, the, the State House is likely to have some very different faces in it this year and we can really determine see you know how the how that works we're going to get a clue at the end of this uh you know this primary so uh by the time we talk next we'll know who's winning on all these races but the state legislature is certainly not the only thing um that is up for grabs there's lots and lots of non-state legislative races we wanted to highlight i think the first thing we should probably talk about are the mayor of our largest cities Probably the biggest prize in that group of races is the Louisville Democratic primary. Um, You know, we've talked to a lot of these candidates. Craig Greenberg, Tim Finley, Shamika Parrish-Wright are are three of the ones that we talked to who are still running. Also, David Nicholson is a a major player in this race. Um, There are a few other candidates um, that I don't predict will have much of an impact. So it's kind of those four um, that I think uh, the race is kind of between. This race has been heavily contested. I think it has turned into a high information campaign. Uh, it really picked up steam there towards uh, in the past month. I think, you know, it wasn't as top of mind as people thought it would be for, uh, you know, about a year. And then it really just kind of accelerated. Is, is that kind of the sense that you got? Yeah, that is the sense that I got. But I still don't feel like it. it's really accelerated to us. You know, we're we have a political podcast. We're really online. Um, but the city as a whole, like, it doesn't feel like a lot of people are talking about it to me. Hmm. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like it was that way in 2010 um, when, when Greg Fisher won his first primary. And it was a very, very crowded field just like this. And I think Greg Fisher won with like 30 some percent. Um, so, you know, you know, that that may just be the way it goes when this is an open seat. Which is kind of surprising, given how frustrated people have been with the mayor's office in the past couple of years. But, you know, the the Democratic nominee is going to have to have somebody to run against, uh, and the Louisville Republican primary is being held as well for, for mayor. Bill DeRoof, who's the mayor of Jefferson Town, which is in Jefferson County. If you don't know how cities work in, in Louisville, you're lucky. Uh, I, I feel like <laughs> Bill DeRoof is the front runner in this race. Oh, yeah. His signs are everywhere. If... if- if we're going by that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you're you're kind of J-Town adjacent. You're not that far from there. Uh, ish. And, you know, you're, you're in the same general vicinity as, as J-Town. I think probably his, his opponent that's closest to him is Philip Molestina, who is, you know, he's an interesting guy. He's from the Bronx originally, but was actually raised in Ecuador. Um, but he's lived in Louisville for 40 years. He's a pastor. Um, yeah, an interesting guy with an interesting story. There's two other candidates that are running, but I think it's highly likely that Bill DeRoof is going to get more than half the vote in this primary. Um, Lexington, which is a nonpartisan race, that primary has four candidates, three of whom I think are, are, are bigger names. So, of course, incumbent Linda Gordon, who's almost certainly going to get the top vote um, in the primary, she's going to face uh, in the general election uh, somebody else. They're, that's the way that it works there in Lexington. They narrow down in this nonpartisan primary to two candidates, and the top two vote getters go on to the general. We've talked about both of these people, but David Kloiber, he has a bunch of money. Um, and, and how he's going to deploy it and how it's being deployed. I haven't 
been to Lexington in the past couple of weeks, so I couldn't tell you how the sign game is going over there. Um, but he's uh, he's running with a bunch of money. And then Adrian Wallace, who I think is maybe more well-known than David Kluber was before this race started. I, I we know We knew who he was ahead of time. Um, but he's kind of had some negative press recently about eviction proceedings that have happened. I think a lot of that got cleared up, um, you know, with, uh, you know, just a misunderstanding between him and his landlord. But the damage might be done just because of the way that it looked in, in the newspaper so anyways we'll, we'll be watching to see who linda gordon faces most likely could i mean it could be a huge upset and these other two uh get the top votes but i think that's unlikely so that's lexington's primary any thoughts about lexington yeah i haven't lived in lexington in a while and and i thought when adrian wallace announced he might be you know a progressive candidate to watch um but i did talk to some people who live in Lexington who told me no David Kloiber is a much more serious candidate and contender and so um I don't really know what's going to happen that's just anecdotally that that's what I've heard (laughs) word on the street from Jasmine there it is (laughs) yeah all right um well we'll be watching it for sure um in the third district congressional race that's another big race that's open John Yarmouth has decided to step down Uh, on the Democratic primary is between Attica Scott who's a member of the state house and Morgan McGarvey who's the Democratic leader in the state senate we talked to Attica Scott just a few weeks ago about this race we didn't get Morgan he's got kids his wife got COVID um in the past couple weeks um you know he's my neighbor we've talked about this before and i saw her walking around in a mask outside so you know hopefully she's it looks like she's feeling better so that's good um but if anybody's interested in how uh this race is going they held a debate um monday night on ket um so that's available on ket's website if you want to watch it i think if you're still on the fence or trying to decide that's a good that's a good source i mean they definitely both brought their a game i thought and they both looked really good in terms of talking about the issues that they care the most about so if you're on the fence it's a good thing to check out um how do you feel how do you feel about this race going into it this race to me it it feels kind of like the mayor's race i think that Greenberg and McGarvey have the support of the establishment and have the money and are probably going to run away with it. Um, So they feel kind of similar in that way to me, but I have talked to a lot of people who are on the fence in this race. And so I definitely think that there are still some undecided voters here. I agree. Um, I I agree with that entire analysis right there. I, I, I do think, you know, both Morgan McGarvey and Craig Greenberg have done a lot more outreach than, you know, candidates in their position would have made like a decade ago. Um, and I yeah, think that that's probably, I think that's probably something that's significantly more necessary as a democratic candidate these days. So, you know, even if, uh, that comes to pass as it likely will, I, I think it's worth mentioning that like that has happened, you know, th- this is a different race and, and the contours of this race are a lot more progressive, um, than they would have been, um, in, in, in the recent past. Um, so, but yeah, you know, I- I'll be very interested to see how it shakes out. I think that there, there are surprising things that can happen. Um, but also i i think that you know i'm i'm interested to see if morgan mcgarvey and craig greenberg the outreach that they did to those uh communities which that you know people in their positions wouldn't have in the past do pay dividends too are they going to do better in some areas of town that i thought they might not do well in given the people that they're mm-hmm. running against so it's something certainly that i'm looking at and we'll see next morgan week. mcgarvey did not do outreach on our show which i'm a little disappointed <laughs> about 
<laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, all right. Uh, again, the Democratic nominee in this race is going to have to have somebody, somebody to run against. And the Republican primary is going on. There are seven candidates running uh, in the Republican side for the congressional seat in the third district. Rhonda Palazzo is, uh, you know, she's run for this seat several times. And she actually got the GOP nomination in 2020. She's in fourth place in fundraising, though, behind Stuart Ray, who wrote himself a $100,000 check. Mike Craven, who has also run in the seat several times, also wrote himself a $100,000 check. And Gregory Puccetti, um, who is in third place in fundraising, he only wrote himself a $25,000 check. So a lot of people putting a lot of money into running for Congress in a race that's going to be exceedingly difficult for them to win. So I honestly only knew of that Stuart Ray was running. Really? You don't? Uh, yeah. Rhonda Palazzo. I remember. I know, yeah. I know who Rhonda Palazzo and Mike Craven are because they ran before. Um, but I, I just haven't seen anything about them in this cycle. Yeah. Is Stuart Ray the one with the big billboards? I think he is. I, I don't know. I haven't seen the billboards, but he has signs that say Ray really big and red writing that I have seen yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens in that race uh, and who uh, likely gets to lose. So um, something to watch for sure. I, uh, I I say that, but it's 2022. It doesn't look great for the Democrats in May. Um, who knows what could happen? All right. Um, so those are the biggest prizes, but we did want to talk about lots of other races. So the Louisville Metro Council has a lot of open seats that will not be competitive in November. So these are actually likely going to be decided in this primary, unless there's a write-in miracle that happens. We did want to talk a little bit about them. So in Louisville District 1, which is in the northwest corner of the city, that that race opened when Jessica Green became a judge. Several Democrats are running, uh, I, I, probably, uh, and I say probably because Kathleen Parks, who's a candidate in the race, she's challenged two candidates residency uh and and one of those people amira granger was actually removed from the ballot so one person she's already gotten off the ballot and there's a second person tammy hawkins um who has her eligibility up in the air with redistricting things have gotten a lot uh, kind of wonky so this has been kind of strange so kathleen parks is for sure running and richard whitlock is another candidate in this race um this is you know the, the northwest corner of the city uh really important west end constituency so uh you know who sits in this seat it's it's been a part of the green family for a long time but attica scott served in it at one point um so uh that that's going to be very interesting to see who comes out of this race also if you listen to um uh the radio in the west end uh denise bentley who has a radio show out there she uh she held this race before the seat before um the green family got a hold of it so anyways that's district one um district nine in clifton and crescent hill that's open due to the retirement of bill hollander it's got a lot of people running so uh mike brooks he's an accountant who talks a lot about urbanism issues allison brotsky elder who's a pr professional who's an emerge Andrew Owen, who's the son of Metro Council legend and former mayoral candidate Tom Owen, he would have been the mayor, except for he lost by like 200 votes. And that was like back in like, I think, 1998 or 2000. Um, And then Jim Mims, uh, who is a landscape architect. They're all running against even more candidates uh, in this heavily Democratic district. It's likely going to be decided in this primary um and, and that's i think the people who i think i highlighted the people who are going to have the largest vote totals but there's even more people running in it um and the last one on this list is district 15 that's a heavily democratic district open due to a retirement kevin triplett is no longer going to be in metro council dan luckett is a metro employee who's worked as a legislative assistant for multiple council members tyler layman is running with the support of louisville's uh, democratic socialists the democratic socialists are working really hard for taylor layman and for robert lavertis bell who jasmine 
talked about in the legislative preview. And then also Jennifer Chappell, she actually has the fundraising leads, and then Elena Balakos has the Seafair endorsement. So a lot of the people in this race have a lot to kind of point at, and it will be an interesting race. So among those three, any anything that you want to say about any of those three races, Jasmine? Man, I really don't know. It, it sounds like maybe Kathleen Parks might have District 1 locked down because of eligibility. Um, I don't know. But District 9 and District 15, I think those are really tough. Um, I think in District 15, I would maybe guess that Jennifer Chapel might be the front runner. Um, but I'm honestly not sure. I know Tyler Lehman is running really hard and he has the better schools, Kentucky endorsement, which is a big one. Um, and he's knocked a ton of doors. So I'm not sure. And then in district nine, I really don't know like how those votes are going to split because I think some of those candidates are like closely ideologically aligned. And so I think that it probably comes down to just who is working really hard <laughs> and like meeting the most people there um, and making the most connections. And so I, I don't really have a good feel for it. Yeah. I don't have a good feel. Yeah. They're going to shake out. I don't have a good feel for any of these races. I have no clue what's going to happen. And, and it's, I mean, when it's a primary, um, I love that feeling. It's just like, oh, man, this is so exciting. And, and I know journalists <laughs> yeah. feel that way. Journalists feel that way in the general. And I just get, like, incredibly nervous during the general. So I don't like that feeling. But the primary, I yeah. do like it. Um, I also did want to mention that there's lots of Metro Council incumbents facing significant mm -hmm. challenges in the primary. And just remember, for most of these Metro Council seats, the primary is the election. They are smaller seats, and the partisanship in those individual districts is very strong. So it's not outside the realm of possibility that one or more of uh, the Metro Council incumbents who are facing a primary challenge might lose. So we uh, have lots more to get to, but I just wanted to mention that for sure. All right, let's move down the street to Lexington again. As usual, there are lots and lots of candidates in the council at large um, race for the LFUCG council. Um, it, for folks who don't live in Lexington, the way that they do this over there is it is a big race where there's a lot of people running and you get to vote for three. And the top three vote getters in the November election go on to become council at large members. The entire county gets to vote on those races. Uh, and it really puts you in good position to become the next mayor. Both Jim Gray and um, Linda Gorton served on council at large before becoming mayor. So, you know, that is that is something to, to know. Um, the top vote getter becomes the vice mayor. Um, and, and this is a big this is a big election. Um, the council at large is always a big deal. Eight candidates are running and the primary is going to cut the ballot to six. So Bill Farmer, Chuck Ellinger and Richard Maloney have all served at different points on the council, both in I think I think a couple of them have been council at large before or might be running for reelection. And I think Bill Farmer was a district LFUCG member. However, only of that group of people who've already served on council, only Ellinger uh, earned the Herald Leader endorsement. The newspaper, though, also endorsed Dan Wu, who's the owner of Atomic Ramen. You've been there before, right? To I haven't been to Atomic Ramen. It, it opened after I left Lexington, but Dan Wu is a super well-known chef in lexington yeah so so he's he's well known i have heard of him i've heard of his restaurant he yeah, was on he, master chef oh yeah I, did, 
I didn't know that. I just knew that he was famous for cooking mm-hmm. ramen noodles. Um, but he's also a member of the Lex Arts and Human Rights Commission. And, and then also James Brown, who's currently the District 1 Councilman. So those three, Dan Wu, James Brown, and Chuck Ellinger earned the Hero Leader endorsement. Um, they join Arnold Farr, Lily Miller-Johnson, and Matt Miniard, who all ran successfully for at-large seats in 2018. So they're trying again. We've got these other uh, two or three guys, two guys that are running strong races that got a big endorsement. And then we have three people who have run and been on the council previously. So District 1, that is one of the, that's the other kind of like district race in that LFUCG I wanted to highlight. It has four candidates running. Rashawn Barry, who's a police officer. Doyle Warren, who's a minister. Mike Wilson, who is a former council member. He's also a minister. And Tana Fogel. Tana Fogel is a well-known organizer with KFTC, who's been a leader in the the movement to restore the voting rights of former felons for a very, very long time. Um, You know, she was active in Lexington organizing folks when I was there. She organized me. Um. So she's cool. I like her. I don't know the rest of these people, but that's a race to watch for sure. And then also District 4 and 5 have a primary between three people. Fayette County Attorney Larry Roberts, he served in his job for 15 years, and he's facing a significant challenge from Angela Evans. Miss Evans was previously on the LFUCG Council and at one point was a guest on our show. So she's actually been on the show and she served Mm -hmm. on council. Um, she moved away for a while to get a, a graduate degree, but she's back in Lexington, and the Herald Leader actually endorsed her. Um, and in their endorsement, wrote at length about Robert's grudge against Sarah Williams and April Taylor. That's their word. The Herald Leader called it a grudge. Um, and Miss Williams and Miss Taylor organized a lot of the BLM protests in Lexington in 2020. All right, across the state, last part of this preview. Um, there's a several judge executive three, three, not several, three judge executive races I wanted to highlight as well. So in Warren County, the judge executive, who's a Republican, Mike Buchanan, he is not running this year. And there are three Republicans vying for this seat in the primary. Doug Gorman, who's currently a magistrate, he's raised like $200,000. And he is facing uh, Jack Wright, a firefighter. So Warren County, you know, I think the third third top five population county in the state of course the home of bowling green the third largest city in the state um very important stepping stone to whatever you want to do next has a lot of local issues that are going on there uh that's a big prize it's been in the hands of republicans for a very long time and warren county as a whole not just bowling green it's tough for democrat to, to win there Madison County incumbent Reagan Taylor is facing a well-funded challenge from Dr. Chris Sippel in the GOP primary along with one other candidate. The major issue in this campaign is the expiration of a program for the disposal of some of the, the country's chemical stockpile. So there's this big program that brought a lot of money and a lot of jobs to the community that is now going away. So that's kind of a big deal. And then also the city and the, the county, Madison County, spent a bunch of money on a jail. We actually talked about this when it happened. Um, it seemed like the plan for for that jail was just to house prisoners, which is not what jails are supposed to do. But Madison County was banking pretty heavily on being able to house prisoners and get money from the state for doing that. And that was kind of their plan to pay off this new jail. Um, and yeah, that's become an issue in, in this campaign. I don't think in like a progressive way of that's a bad idea, but mostly because it's not financially a good decision. It doesn't look like, so those are two Republican counties that are having a pretty significant primary on that side. The last one I wanted to highlight was Franklin County. Three Democrats are running in this primary, including incumbent Houston Wells. He's facing a well-funded challenge from Michael Mueller, who is currently a magistrate. Mueller is running on a public works campaign, saying that he hopes to lead the charge to improve Lakeview Park there in Frankfurt. 
and to build a 160,000 square foot event and recreation space. Also in the campaign is Steve Shelton, who's a more conservative Democrat running as an outsider. It's kind of interesting. You've got these guys that are talking about all this, uh, you know, financial, we're spending too much money on the Republican side. And in Franklin County, we have this Democratic primary that's like, we want there to be nice things in our county. <laughs> so there you go. Oof. All right, Jasmine, that was a bunch of races. Uh, any Any thoughts on any of the rest of that? None of those are places that I live near, so, <laughs> so I don't have any predictions or anything like that. I do know that I've somehow been targeted in that Fayette County attorney race because I've been getting, like, Angela Evans ads and emails oh, wow. <laughs> for a, a long time. Um, I think I think that's the most interesting one to me. Larry Roberts has, has been there for a long time, and Angela Evans has name recognition for being on city council and now she's endorsed by the herald leader so i'm really interested to see what happens in that race yeah she's got a lot of other really big endorsements as well um and mm-hmm. it'll be in- interesting to see if this like insurgent campaign is able to pull it off um so yeah it'll be interesting all right i did have another topic to talk about and let's get into it it's louisville's budget that's a big deal louisville mayor greg fisher issued his final budget last week it totaled 1.266 billion dollars which is an increase from 1.08 eight nine billion the previous year so it's like a 16 percent increase that's the largest per uh, the largest percent increase year over year goes to louisville forward which is the economic development group which would see its budget increase 28.5 percent or 17.9 million dollars and the largest dollar amount increase was for lmpd which is budgeted for 22.5 million new dollars that's a 12.6 percent increase a lot of that has to do with uh, new um pension obligations that the the um that lmpd has and they want to hire a bunch of new officers the single biggest program percentage increase was for the office of safe and healthy neighborhoods which saw a 60 percent increase going from 5.9 million to 9.4 million dollars as a reminder, the mayor's budget is a starting point for negotiations. The Metro Council is already in the process of marking up the budget for changes, and they will have final say over the budget. I know that there's a big hearing going on tomorrow. There's also some hearings going on today, and they've already had a few hearings on the budget. So we will be getting more and more about how the, the council is going to change the mayor's budget as we go along here. The budget includes $163.5 million for capital projects, which is a lot more than normal. Almost all of that money is set aside, $130 million for matching grants from the federal government through the infrastructure law. So we don't know exactly what that money is going to go to yet, but this money could result in massive capital investments into the city. That $130 million could turn into like $200 or $300 million, which would be really cool to see that much money invested in our city. We do know about a few of those capital projects. So the the intersection at Main, Story, and Baxter, uh, that's in Butchertown. It would get a, a million dollar makeover. 800000 of that is going to come from federal money. So just $200,000 investment to get a million dollar makeover of that really disastrous intersection. It is a mess there. Um, $4.25 million is going to convert two streets in West Louisville to two-way traffic. That's, you know, there's a lot of research about how that reduces crime, how that improves walkability, how it makes the streets just a much better place to live. It reduces crime 
traffic accidents, that's probably the biggest piece of it. Um, so that's great. Um, glad we're going to be able to do that. And there's also funding for a $4 million redesign of 9th Street um, and also a $6.25 million for the re- redesign of Broadway. Uh, and and $675,000 for widening River Road. So we do know a lot of where these capital projects are. Places in town which are really important thoroughfares. Ninth Street is a huge deal. Uh, They call it the Ninth Street Divide for a reason, and being able to reimagine that street can make a big difference in the city. Broadway, one of the coolest streets in town, but it is so scary to walk along sometimes because it's so wide and there's so many cars. So being able to walk down Broadway and feel safer would be a big, big deal. The crazy thing is that the city's responsibility for these projects is less than $2 million, and that represents you know, almost a $10 million investment in, in the city. So that's, that's a big deal. Inflation plays a huge role in this budget. The city has a large number of job openings, which they're having trouble filling, and workers received 8% raises last year. So that is a huge hit to the budget, one of the big cost increases. And being able to fill these positions uh, and keep them salary competitive is a tough, tough deal in this economy. Public safety is a major theme for this budget. Fully 50% of the money spent in this budget goes towards what the mayor is calling public safety. That's in line with previous budgets, but that's not just the police department, but that's a big piece of it. Fisher wants the city to employ 1,200 officers by 2025 and build a new LMPD training facility. Currently, LMPD employs 1,028 officers, according to the Courier-Journal, and LMPD leaders have said the department needs 300 new officers. There's money in Fisher's budget to tear down the LMPD headquarters on 7th and Jefferson and money froze already appointed, appropriated in, in a past budget to build a, buy a building on Chestnut for LMPD and other departments. That would become the new headquarter and also headquarter a lot of the other city departments. The budget has $4.5 million for a program that would change the response to behavioral health crises from sending police officers to sending what these, the, what these people are calling Dove Delegates. The types of calls that would have this type of response would be, you know, people who are refusing to leave a location, uh, requests for a welfare check, or people who are just talking to themselves and people end up calling 911 about that. So this budget includes a significant deficit, $170 million over two years. However, the budget is based on projections of revenue and spending. So all of those things can change. Metro Council budget leaders Bill Hollander and Kevin Kramer acknowledge that many of the open positions in Metro government likely won't be filled and the budget doesn't fully reflect what Louisville could get from the federal government through the infrastructure bill. So that that deficit may not necessarily come to fruition at that level. Anthony Piagentini, who I think is, it's fair to say, is the the most outspoken conservative on Metro Council, said that he would be, quote, working to stop that insanity, quote, unquote, in reference to the budget deficit. This budget uh, projects out a couple of years, of course, and Mayor Fisher will not be in office at that point. It will be very interesting to see how much of the process changes after a new mayor sworn in. It's likely that no matter who it is, there will be a lot of change. So, Jasmine, I went through that really quickly. I appreciate you uh, letting me do that. But uh, what, what do you have to say? Anything about any of those topics that we just talked about? I guess I had a question. You know, do you have any concerns about a potential $170 million deficit in the budget? Not really. Um, you know, I, I think that 
we need to we need to allocate that amount of money into the capital projects piece, which I think is what's generating a large part of that deficit because there's a lot that we could get access to. And that's like once in a lifetime type opportunities. I don't think it represents an ongoing problem. Um, and there isn't like a lot of deficit that's due to like recurring expenses. Um, but we do have a lot of room to wiggle in terms of revenue if we just had the will to do it. Um, and I wonder with a lot of these Metro Council races that we had talked about, uh, getting some new folks on Metro Council, if the appetite for doing one of those revenue increases that we talked about back in like 2018 might be possible. I don't think this city spends enough money. <laughs> so I'm not too worried that we're spending mm-hmm. too much. Um, I think that we probably don't have enough revenue and there's ways that we could right size this. I think it was a huge step backwards that the uh, the state allowed for more cities in, Fa- or in Jefferson County because that just makes people's taxes more confusing and less focused. We aren't able to do things as a community and we basically just like siphon off individual services to small groups of people and, and it's not very efficient. So that was a step in the wrong direction but I think um, the people in this town know that and hopefully we can educate people around that if they do try to start new cities to get them to stop doing that but no i'm, I'm not too concerned about the deficit and, and i think it does represent a huge opportunity for us to spend the amount of money that we uh might need um to make this city into the place that we need to be and then this is just the mayor unveiling his budget but this is not the final budget that we'll have right yeah, um, right. They're, they're doing markup right now. I think probably as we speak, there's some some folks down in City Hall that are talking about some part of this budget. I know that um, there's some pretty significant investments in pre-K that are being made already mm-hmm. by, by Mayor good. Fisher. Um, I, I think that those resources will only ex- expand no matter who our next mayor is. Um, and I know that there's a big hearing about that tomorrow. So, you know, there's a lot that still needs to happen regarding he- hearings for this budget and big votes that need to be taken about it as well. Did you have anything about the police office? Um, I mean, they're hiring new officers, but they also have some interesting new programs. Any any thoughts about that stuff? Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely glad that the Dove Delegates program is getting funding. That was like a, a pilot that they've been working on. And um, I think that's definitely a really positive thing. Hopefully, if, if it goes well, they may be able to even expand it to include even more types of calls. I think that would be ideal. Um, you know, I, I've talked a lot about the show about like increasing police budgets and, and not really supporting that. I know that they're in, that they believe that they're also experiencing a staffing crisis. So I understand why they're hiring more officers. Um, but I think that, we need to re-envision the way we police so that we don't need so many. Um, yeah. But I've been on that soapbox yeah. probably enough for our listeners. I, I, I do think it's worth mentioning that a big part of that uh, price increase is due to retirement funding that needs to happen. And if people work their entire career, they get earned a pension, they deserve that pension. And, oh, yeah. And that's that's a big Yeah, I don't, I don't have any problem with anything yeah, like yeah. that. All right, uh, that's enough about that. Uh, let's talk about quick hits. Jasmine, you got the first one. All right, so the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting published an interesting piece about um, House Bill 7, which is the bill that cut government benefits. During debate, David Mead read off statistics about misuse of benefits, and he cited the Foundation for Government Accountability. Um, they are a Florida think tank with a history of pushing, like, 
what people call like junk social science. And that group has really ramped up their presence in Kentucky over the last few years. And Jasmine Deemers of the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting wrote this piece um, discussing who the Foundation for Government Accountability is and, and how their data may be flawed. And it's really interesting. So we wanted to um, note that in our quick hits this week. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was I, I was really fascinated by that. And I thought it was really great the way that she kind of showed the web between some of the major lobbyists in Kentucky in this group too. All right. The next one is that Craig Bouchard, uh, who formerly was of Brady aluminum. We talked about Brady aluminum quite a bit the whole time it existed. He's kind of a shyster who, uh, got $5 million <laughs> from the state and also a bunch of money from a bunch of other people to try to build, uh, what he called an aluminum factory in Ashland and ended up leaving without ever doing anything. Um, he is off to his next thing, which is a venture called Space Railway, based in Dallas. So this group wants to build space elevators. Uh, Jasmine, before you uh, read this story, did you know what a space elevator was? No. <laughs> yeah. So the concept's actually been around for a long time. Uh, it actually goes back to like the 1890s. Um, and it has actually inspired a lot of science fiction stories. It, it, it's grounded in this idea that's totally plausible, makes sense in the physics of it. Um, it would really, like, if it worked, would make space travel a lot easier. Um, but the, eye of, the idea of actually implementing one of these things absolutely strains credulity. Uh, it is not going to happen. Uh, it is a crazy idea. Uh, and it is just a way to, um, you know, sell people a dream that will never happen, which makes it perfect for Craig Bouchard. All right, last but not not least at all, Daniel Definitely Cameron. Not least. Yeah, Daniel Cameron, the Kentucky Attorney General, filed to run for governor today. Um, we, we had all of this done already. We we're at minute fifty three of just the news piece, uh, so we are not going to get into that Ooh. this week. So, uh, but there will be lots, lots more about Daniel Cameron and his run for governor next week. So stay tuned for that. All right, with all of that, let's get to our interview with Dr. Emily Bingham. Dr. Emily Bingham is the author of My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song from Knopf Publishing. She's also the author of two other history books, Mordecai and Irrepressible, The Jazz Age Life of Henrietta Bingham. Her family owned and led the Courier Journal from 1918 until 1986. Dr. Bingham lives in Louisville and has taught at, at Center College and Bellarmine University. So, Emily Bingham, welcome to my Old Kentucky podcast. Thank you so much, Jasmine. All right. So, we are here to talk about your new book. And this book takes a very deep dive into the history and context of my Old Kentucky home throughout its existence from its writing until the strange and solemn version that was played before the September running of the Kentucky Derby in 2020. So how long have you been considering writing a book about my old Kentucky home? And what made you decide that this song was worth the effort that you put into researching? Well, I um, moved back to Kentucky in the 1990s when you were probably not born. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, were, we were born then. <laughs> Um, and I started having uh, a family here and settling back in. I obviously I grew up in Louisville, um, so I was really familiar with the song, just the way we all are here. Of just its osmosis, it's in the air, especially around this time of year. Um, and I, you know, had a PhD in history and thought I kind of knew my 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 you know own state's uh, background pretty well. 
But uh, when it came to introducing some visiting uh, guests to this tradition associated with our, our great horse race and first Saturday in May, I did just the barest like checking on Wikipedia, which in those days was kind of a young thing. Maybe it wasn't Wikipedia, but, uh, and found out that the song wasn't the innocent and charming um, thing, at least in its origins that I had assumed. I really didn't know when it was from. So I discovered that it was an 1853 song by Stephen Foster, who I knew, uh, kind of knew, oh, Susanna, mm -hmm. I knew all these other songs. and. I found out that it was a song about slavery. It was a song about the slave trade. And that gave me pause. I just was really surprised. And then I realized that nobody knew that, or at least they never talked about it. So that's when it sort of became like, maybe there is a, I mean, it took me a long time to think about it as a book, but I, I saw a problem and that cognitive dissonance and then how few other people had any awareness um, of the of that background made me think maybe there's a, a bigger story here. Yeah, I really appreciated how the book kind of takes a look at, um, you know, the history of the United States from, you know, 1850 all the way up and through the modern days, but especially around the Jim Crow era um, through the lens of the song. And, and, you know, I think that that's kind of how the best history books are written where you have a subject that the book is technically about, but the context around the subject is really what gives the book its life and color. Um, and, and yeah, this is a really great book on that level because you attack or uh, not attack, take a look at a lot of really interesting things like Stephen Foster, who's kind of become a mythical figure in the United States, a really honest. And, and I think one of the most uh, convincing and, and truthful looks at, at his life. Um, you know, the overlooked stories of Governor Edwin Morrow and uh, J.K. Lilly, uh, their role in raising the profile of my old Kentucky home in Kentucky and across the country. And and this guy named Matt Wynn, who turned the Kentucky Derby into a memorial to the Old South when it hadn't really necessarily been that before. So, you know, given that this is clearly the story that you're telling, like the creation of the Jim Crow era through the history of this song, what do you hope that your readers take away from this book um it, given all of that context context that you've given in the book wow thanks for bringing up all those amazing characters i got to meet along the way <laughs> like jk lily of lily pharmaceutical fame um so what i do hope um robert that people will leave with is an awareness a lot of things but a few things an awareness that this song originated not in kentucky in the north in the uh urbanized uh area of the nation in the 1850s so specifically pittsburgh pennsylvania that it originated with a white man who was writing music for the blackface minstrel um theater which was hard to explain but like the overwhelmingly most popular entertainment of the americas in of, of the united states in in the 19th century um and that Kentucky really didn't have a whole lot to do with it, <laughs> oddly. Um, people, there's this myth about him visiting uh, this state and being inspired to write the song, but that's not the case. He was just simply writing the kinds of songs which were about black people enjoying plantation life uh, that were popular. And Kentucky only really comes into the picture of the book in the at the turn of the 20th century, so 50 years after that song is published. And I like to say that they made a sort of trifecta bet 
on this song. So first they invest in a tourist attraction in Bardstown, Kentucky, um, call it the old Kentucky home and say that's where Foster had his inspiration. Um, then they make it the state song. That's so the first one is 1923. Then five years later, it becomes the state song. And in 1930, it becomes a figure, uh, a central piece in the rituals of the Kentucky Derby. And that is the Jim Crow era. The 1920s are the absolute center of the expropriation, exclusion, uh, segregation um, of black, black Americans. So you kind of mentioned this at the top of the show, but the book takes aim at several of the myths that we were taught about Kentucky. You know, you talked about um, things that you didn't realize about our history. So the Derby and, and the origin of my old Kentucky home. And this includes the story of Stephen Foster and the history of the home at Federal Hill in Bardstown that you were just talking about. And even the central theme of the song itself. And so, um, the opening quote of your book is from Ulysses about the problems with sentimentality. So uh, tell us a, a little bit about how the book has been received so far, given um, the hard truths that you're telling about one of the most sacred of Kentucky traditions. Mm -hmm. Right. And so here's this song that is about a brutal piece of our past and yet conveys in the way it was written to begin with, um, but also how it's been held up in the 20th century, this great sense of intimacy and longing and, and, and obviously love of home and sentiment, uh, remembering the past and, remem and celebrating the good times and, and the hard times too. Um, and yet the sentimentality of what was originally a sentimental song about slavery, but amazingly the way our, our country has managed its history, we've managed to forget that more or less, um, is that we, we are allowed to, um, we want to be sentimental. We want to think uh, mm -hmm. nice things about the past. And that's, there are things to celebrate about the past, but I don't think this is really one of them. Blackface minstrelsy, as uh, Frederick Douglass said, stole, the one thing that white people couldn't have from black people, their blackness of their skin by blacking up and pretending to be black. And I, I, I think this, you know, continuing something that originated in that pain of families being separated and, and the fiction that enslaved people were happy singing, in, at least in Kentucky, <laughs> is a real problem. So those are some of the myths. And, and it's gotten so sacred, Jasmine, because it has been passed down with love. It is a, mm -hmm. a thing of, it's, you know, this is what tradition does and it's in our families and it's in our institutions and our music teachers have taught us this. Our bands all play it because it's what we are taught we're supposed to do and, and people care and want to do the right thing. But we get to choose you know, sentimentality is, is okay, but when it, when it continues something that has been hurtful to others, and this song has been hurtful, and it continues to hurt people in this commonwealth um, who say, can I please have a song that doesn't remind me about my, you know, forebears being enslaved? Um, I think we can decide what traditions we 
we get to keep, we keep, right? That is a choice. It was a choice that Kentucky made in the turn of the 20th century, a hundred years ago to make this their song and their brand. And I think we have a choice whether that's the right brand for the next hundred years in this, in this state. And that doesn't mean it's easy or it should be done immediately. It's something to sit with and I think really contemplate and talk about. Yeah, I think that response leads me into the next question. At the end of the book, you you do call my old Kentucky home irredeemable um, because ultimately it's a minstrel song about slavery. And so what does irredeemable mean in this context? And what specific changes would you like to see in the state and the country regarding the role of the song? I think I specifically say that for me, it is irredeemable. Um, and I had to sit with this for <laughs> so long yeah. to come to that place. And I'll, I'll tell you, I used to sing this song to my children. I used to mm -hmm. cry at the Derby to this song. I mean, I would get the chills that are described every year in every Derby story <laughs> in the land, right? Um, but I think that I would I also say, I, I never would say it's wrong to love a song, but music is powerful. And I do think it is um, possible to do wrongs or commit wrongs when we don't understand what we claim to love. And I think this is an opportunity for us to understand not just this particular um, example of white culture silencing uh, and making stereotypes about black people, it is a way to think about that larger issue of systems that do that. And so it really, you know, this is one small thing, but I do think the act of reconsidering whether to continue to perpetuate something that's, that, has, that has been hurtful and that comes from a place of exploitation is what we wanna do. That's, that's something that we can all do and we can do collectively. And I think it's different, you know, at a Churchill Downs, that is a, 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 a corporation. They can decide what they do, right? That mm -hmm. is, you know, they could decide tomorrow what to do about this and change, change it. Um, the state of Kentucky has a different set of um, decisions to make because our, we have, we're gonna have to have a process if, if this is gonna change. And I think that's would be a really interesting process politically to design or to contemplate. Um, I don't know when or whether that I'll see that, but I would love to see black citizens very much involved, if not fully uh, running a process to consider this song and what it, what its future will be um, given that white institutions and uh, white people have profited uh, both emotionally and financially off this song for 170 years. And I like to say it's about the settings. It's not that this song will go away entirely. This is ingrained in our history. This is a huge, there are a million tchotchkes out there that say my old Kentucky home on them. Um, it's not gonna disappear, in, it, it can't. But I do think we could think about, well, would you, in Germany, would you see people before a sporting event standing up and celebrating a song that, ha, you know, had as its roots in uh, the Holocaust, you know? Mm -hmm. Or would you, in South Africa, see people at a cricket match, you know, raring to go, you know, before the, the, the teams set off at each other. 
um, you know, singing a song about apartheid or even humming a song or even swaying to its music. And I think there's been a lot of like, well, we can just fix this and keep something else. And I think that's been a lot of American society doing. Can we just fix this little thing at the edge or not talk about the ugly part and keep the rest? And I think we're at a, that's part of why we are where we are. I think we need to go deeper than we've wanted to go. Yeah, actually, that, that does lead very nicely into the next question I wanted to ask you about, which was about minstrelsy in, in general. And I really liked the way that you talked about minstrelsy in this book. I mean, it's such an interesting subject and one which, you know, I, I don't know, I, I haven't read nearly enough about it. It is something I've researched and looked into quite a bit. And it is just so fascinating and interesting the ways in which uh, both minstrelsy itself was stayed a lot around a lot longer than you would think. And then also the ways in which it has like seeped into the culture into ways that it even things that are coming out still today have their roots in minstrelsy. And, you know, you point to the minstrel past of my old Kentucky home as a reason it's irredeemable. You, you give a couple of other reasons, but you do point to that specifically. Uh, and, and like you were just talking about, there have been, you know, let's make some changes. Let's change the words to this song to make it more palatable maybe to make make it so that the parts we sing aren't about slavery we can like fool people into that even though that's what its history is and and you know uh, being rooted in minstrelsy as uh as so many things are uh, leads us to some really hard conversations like you know uh the ice cream truck that comes around my house plays turkey in the straw which is i mean that's almost every ice cream truck and that's a minstrel song um you know we we have uh mickey mouse who is a minstrel character that was created by walt disney and my four-year-old niece loves to watch mickey mouse clubhouse which is like a little kids tv show that's made to to this day uh you know funny girl is uh being revived on broadway right now and that's a show about follies uh which itself had a uh, uh, that is blackface on its face. Uh, you know, sh- how, how do we have this conversation? And, and, you know, what are, what are, I mean, how do, I mean, how did you want to start this conversation? Do you think that this is a conversation that we're ready for? And, and what do you think the next steps are in it as we think about our own history and as it relates to these, these topics? I love that you're into this. It's one of the most complex cultural twisted stories I, I, I ever have encountered. And it's not going to be easy for me to digest it into, um, into uh, something for this podcast. However, you bring up some things about, you know, it was something from the 19th century, but it's still going. And we still have these vestigial, you know, things that, that pull at us because we love them, like Mickey Mouse and ice cream trucks and, and things that, that I think, you know, remind people that it isn't all gone. And I, and I also think we want as a culture these, I just, we want to clean everything up and like, you know, push a button and say it, it's okay now, right? We want permission to not feel bad about the way things have been, have gone in this country. And I don't think I'm gonna give you that. <laughs> um, I think that, the, you know, the ice cream truck is an opportunity if they continue to choose to play that song, which you might ask them about. Um, you know, there are ice cream, there are other songs that ice cream truck can play actually, um, you know, to bring that up with your kid. Um, the sweet taste of ice cream is associated with something that has deep roots in a really problematic part of our culture. Um, and as far as, you know, uh, you know, the minstrel show began to die down in the 20th century in this country, but you know what it did? It went 
into clubs and um, and and fraternity parties and all kinds of home packages. You could buy your own, you know, minstrel kit and put on your own show and sing My Old Kentucky Home or, or Dixie or, you know, other, so many songs, let me tell you. And they were, it was, it was brought into the household in a way that, that I think people, you know, they want to say it's gone. You're not supposed to do that, but they don't want to understand what it meant to take someone else's experience and mock it or make it even sentimentalize it the way a song like my old kentucky home does and then i i guess the the, the infantilization of minstrelsy is a whole other like there's dissertations on this about how minstrelsy was once it became not okay to do in public became this thing to teach your children these these cute all-american melodies um, and what, what was going on with that? It was a way of keeping it without having to look at it somehow. And again, keeping it in the generation after generation. So what do you do? Don't be afraid to tell your kid that there are hard things in our past. I mean, I don't know about boycotting the ice cream truck, but I think it's, it's, it's okay to have these things and talk about them rather than pretend we can just... Um, sanitize our entire history we can't it's it's there for us to confront yeah the, the ice cream truck that comes to my neighborhood still plays the minstrel song but i think one of the companies like one of the bigger companies i think it was like good humor had like rizza from the wu-tang clan that made a new song for them that was pretty i i, I didn't hear about that kind of recently um yeah there, there's this is a whole big discussion that's definitely bigger than this and you think about like second order effects people who are younger my age or just a little older who were like inspired by cartoons that were made in the 40s and 50s that because nobody had that conversation with them were inspired by by those cartoons and have no idea about their history and and what we do about that and and it is it's just a big a whole big big discussion that's that's a <laughs> very complex and probably bigger uh than just this conversation but, but but moving on just a little bit uh you know ultimately this is a book about racism um, and, and I don't think there's there, that's not something you're shying away from, and I don't think that it's something we're shying away from either. Um, and you know, here we are, three white people having a conversation about racism, and, and you, as an author and as a white person, you know, you're constantly checking your privileges in the pages of this book. Um, but are you concerned about presenting black perspectives on my old Kentucky home as you know monolithic? Um, how do you take care to write about black perspectives in this book in a responsible way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was really nervous <laughs> about that, uh, for sure. And I think part of the reason that I, um, well, I wrote this book for people like you and, um, and all my fellow white Kentuckians and all my fellow white Americans who care to look deeply into how we've gotten where we are. Um, this is not something, uh, I mean, I actually was on stage with Crystal Wilkinson, our amazing um, poet laureate, um, Afrolachian poet last night. And she said that there were parts of this book that were really hard for her um, as a black woman. And I winced, <laughs> um, but then she also said, but this is not really a book for me. And she looked out at the audience and said, it's, for this mostly white audience to talk to one another about. And this is, again, I think one of the things we 
haven't wanted to do and we haven't wanted to talk to our children about this complicated part of our past very much and especially when it how it may affect us right not just holding slaves which on my i carry right in my family but just the privileges all through the jim crow era that may have that 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 were part of our families because our skin was not black okay um and the things that black people did experience instead. And as far as speaking about the black people in this story, the most fascinating thread of all was for me, the black performers, singers, actors, um, who either were forced to use this song because that is what the audience or their producers demanded, or because it just was such a standard by the time they came along into the world of show business that that they only they just had to deal with it and they did it in many different ways um but they their agency was circumscribed by extraordinary com constraints and even within that those constraints i could see and i i hope that i did justice to them as individuals i mean so one of them a guy named billy mclean who was called into the office of a Louisville uh, vaudeville emperor, had a bunch of vaudeville theaters and, and told, hey, I'll give you, I'll give you black uh, performer a, a job to put together a show called The South Before the War. And my old Kentucky home is gonna be a, a central part of that, of, of, of that uh, show that we're gonna take on the road. And Billy McLean, he had never had the chance to start a show of his own and hire the performers and the dancers and the singers. And he gave hundreds and hundreds of black people jobs through that, but he didn't have a choice about what was the content of that he, or he had, he had limited choices, let's say. And so he, he got so pissed off eventually, he just moved to Australia. <laughs> it's just like, I can't deal with this. And he was extraordinarily talented. And then there's a woman like Henrietta Vinton Davis, who I call her, I've started calling her the Beyonce of 1890s. Um, she took this song about slavery, about, you know, the, the, the horrors that her, her people had experienced that had been sentimentalized and treacleized and forced into the mouths of black performers. Um, and and turned it completely upside down into this empowering uh, play about how a, a theatrical play about how black people really won the Civil War and how they were going to start their own Kentucky home uh, on the same plantation where they had been enslaved because they bought it yeah. <laughs> from the white people who had owned them. And so that's that's her lemonade. That's yeah. her lemonade album. <laughs> I, I really did appreciate. I mean, it was one of the interesting things about the all the different ways that that black people through history had tried to update this song and how it kind of didn't catch on when they wanted to change the lyrics. And that was, that was kind of telling. I, I did. I do really appreciate that answer though, because I don't think it's bad to have three people have a conversation about racism. I think that's actually really important. Um, and I do think, uh, whenever my conversations with black people about my old Kentucky home have mostly been like, that's, a white people problem like i don't care at all about that song and if y'all want to like i don't like it but like i have bigger problems um so yes i do think that this is a conversation that white people need to have and white people need to have more conversations about racism so uh, i do think that this is a great step in the right direction um, um for that conversation um yeah so one other thing i did want to ask you about regarding the book um is the way in which you weave personal narrative 
through almost every chapter in the book and, and you write about your own personal experiences you even reference like crying at the derby which is a story in the book um and, and to me I, I i thought it really worked to ground the book you know i mentioned you know you're checking your privilege throughout the entire book at many points and, and i think that this is one of the ways that you do it um but it's kind of unique I, you know not a lot of history books include this level of first person narrative um what what did you hope to accomplish by doing that um and and, and you know what did you hope to communicate to your audience when you wrote in this way um it was something again i was very nervous about <laughs> um i had a whole draft with none of that in it and then i tried putting it in tiny bits here and there and some of my early readers well actually, i actually had division in my early readers uh one of them was like emily please 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 don't do this <laughs> and um and then but most of them said that for them as readers those places where I share, confront um, my own, I don't know, complicity isn't even the right word. It, this is the bathwater that I was, you know, brought up in. And to just be straight about that, there's nothing particularly special about my family. You're, my family lived through uh, Jim Crow and through the even the 1970s where, you know, for instance, the people who cleaned my the house I lived in were treated in ways that I would never, you know, be comfortable with today. But I just, I just feel like it, it hopefully makes it safer for the reader to look at, examine those elements in their own, you know, their own families' lives, their own circles, because it shouldn't. It's not about shame. I don't want to shame. I'm not going to be ashamed. I am. I want to be responsible. I want to just be honest. And I want to make sure that my kids don't ever grow up thinking that what happened in the past has no bearing on the present, either their present or the present of the people of diverse backgrounds that surround them. Yeah, I, I would push back a little to say that there's nothing special about your family. I think there's probably a lot that's special about your family. Well, Everybody knows your family. Nobody knows my family. Well, <laughs> what, yeah, okay, Robert. Okay, I, I, I hear you. And maybe that's part of the reason that I, in a way, in a, in a backwards way, that I feel like it's it would be even more ridiculous for me not to own up to that because mm -hmm. my family is better known than so many. But it's also what is what is special, you know, what's really special about my family is I know so much about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very true. And that's because of my privilege. Mm -hmm. That is because we have decades and decades of, you know, whatever pieces of paper and photographs and things because we've had such stable economic lives. Um, and, you know, we're able to keep stuff around and, you know, take pictures and movies of ourselves. And I mean, it just, those, and, and, and so that, and I wrote a book about a great aunt. And in the course of that book, I think that is really the beginning of this book in terms of my personal history. I, I had to confront the founder of my journalistic uh, family history, Robert Worth Bingham, because he was her dad. And in looking closely at Henrietta Bingham in that book, um, which was published back in 2015, I I met a man that I had never heard about in around the dinner table, let's mm -hmm. say, right? I met a man that uh, was a lot more complex. Yeah, and I really do appreciate inserting more personal stuff. My, and I, I think one of the things that I think about this too is I think female historians and women historians are more likely to do this. Uh, 
there is a biography of George Washington written by Alexis Coe last year, uh, or maybe it was a couple years ago at this point, where she does this a lot. And I thought that that was really grounding, and it was the best biography of George Washington I had read because I think so many times uh, biographies are more about myth-making than about like telling people's actual stories. And I think writing about your own experiences while writing or while experiencing the history is is one really good way to do that. So I, I really like yeah, that. And- and it breaks the wall. I mean, it's mm-hmm. this, this, you know, in graduate school, we were taught that you figure out all these, this facts and information and data and you put it down and, and, and you, you tell the story in a way that, you know, shows why it's so important and why, you know, it's, it, it's a, it's a, no one ever has written about this or found these truths before. Um, and that's a kind of, uh, well, it's definitely patriarchal, and it's definitely hierarchical, and I think that um, I've pushed back a, 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 in that all my writings to some degree. I, I want, I want history to be something that everyone can see themselves in that stream. Right? Each of you is in the stream of history, whether it's about the history of Kentucky, the history of education, the history of growing up male in, in the 20, late 20th century, um, the history of parenting. You are in that story. And so I'm determined that people not pretend that there's this authority up there who determines the whole story. You are determining that story too. Yeah, definitely. I agree with Robert. I really appreciated that additional story and and context in the book as well. Um, But before we let you go, tell us where can people buy or access your book? And, you know, what's next? Do you have ideas about your next book? So um, please, uh, for your Kentucky listeners, go to Carmichael's. If you're not in Kentucky or Louisville (laughs) listeners, go to Carmichael's or your nearest independent bookstore. There are a bunch around the state, terrific bookstores, Poor Richards in Frankfurt and Joseph Beth in Lexington. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, and share with your friend. I mean, the best way to spread, spread the word about a book, I mean, whether it's you got your book at the library or you download it, you know, and listen to it, which you can do also, I read the book actually on the audible version. Um, that uh, is to is just tell a friend, tell one or two friends what you're reading about and what you think of it. You may not agree with me. That's okay. Um, but I hope you will do that. And then as far as my next project, um, I, I'm, I'm not a great multitasker. <laughs> um, as you might imagine, I, I'm able to focus for six years on a single, <laughs> a single, a single research project. Not really. I've been doing other things along the way besides teaching too. But I, I do have one in the back burner that I don't know if it's a book, but I need to look farther into it. There was a expulsion of about seven or eight or nine black families from the city of Campbellsburg, town of Campbellsburg, Kentucky in 1877. They were literally put on a train and told to get out of the state um, and, uh, or one of their number would be lynched. And I want to understand better what happened there. I've done a bit of the legwork for it. But that was the year that Reconstruction came to a close and federal troops um, left the southern states and black Americans were left um, kind of to the 
um, to their own, de- you know, devices and uh, to do what they could. And there were a lot of, it was the beginnings of a lot more racial violence in this state. Um, so we'll see if that morphs into an actual book project, but there will be something. And I do feel like this, this has been my Kentucky book. Um, I don't sure my next project will be Kentucky, but it's, um, I love this state and this is a love letter of sorts to a place I care about so deeply. I want it to understand itself better and represent itself in ways that feel true to who it, who who we are today, um, and and I don't know if it has implications for your podcast title. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, that's uh, something we've talked about for sure. But yeah, uh, Emily Bingham, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you being on today. Thank you both so much. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old Pod. They can like our Facebook page and find our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week.